Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live, talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey there, and good morning. I wish my general mood matched the the sunniness of, of this uh, morning. It's uh, September 23rd, and we have had a stretch of just perfect sunny fall weather. Of course, uh, no rain. Wouldn't it be nice if we could mix it up a little bit? Um, however, good morning to you. Uh, I was just, I'm sorry. Um, not that I want to start with this. Um, I was just seeing some of Trump uh, at the uh, Pittsburgh airport yesterday. Here's our president. They go out and buy tuna fish and soup. You know that, right? Because they throw it. It's the perfect weight, tuna fish. They can really rip it, right? And that hits you. No, it's true. Bumblebee brand tuna. He's obviously talking about the um, protesters. I I don't know. I don't think we've seen any. Uh, first of all, why would you buy tuna, bumblebee tuna, which is pricey, <laughs> and then throw it? It's, I mean, it's I I'm sorry. I just God, I can't take it anymore. And Ed uh, writes, um, I heard a tiny excerpt uh, this morning from the president speaking in Moontown. My ears perked up when I heard him say the words, our enemies. Now, I want to be clear about this. This president, when he refers to our enemies, is talking about Americans. He's talking to his base and calling someone like me their enemy. Used to be if a president uttered the phrase, our enemies, they were talking about, you know, I don't know, the the Russians. But as you know, this president loves, looks up to, wants to be just like Vladimir Putin. Um, so he ain't considered an enemy. He is to be emulated. No, you're the enemy. And the crowd knows it. So Ed goes on, my ears perked up when I heard him say the words, our enemies. Sounds like the setup for a civil war to me. I consider myself a pacifist, so... I find those words really scary. I am afraid that he and the entire Republican Party are setting us up for a civil war, regardless of who wins the election. Perhaps I am overreacting, but why would the Republicans possibly be okay 
with this kind of setup for a war in what is supposed to be their own country. It's getting scarier and scarier, and it's not because of Halloween. No. Yeah, um, if a civil war is what it takes to retain the White House, um, recall about a few months ago taking you through a nightmare tour of the things that could happen um, after this election, from election eve on. And it was the result of a war game play done by a group of scholars and former uh, Republican and Democratic politicians. Of They just were game playing what would happen if it was a close election on November 3rd, no winner was declared uh, immediately. And you'll recall each one of these things was pretty frightening, and they did all end in the streets and with violence, except Biden winning by a huge landslide, which didn't kick off quite as much turmoil. So Ed's fear is is not a paranoid fear. Ed's fear is based on reality and based on what we have seen of this administration and its enablers, the Republicans. Um, and it would be very unwise for us not to be prepared for these worst-case scenarios. Um, it's just, it's, I know, hard to get our heads around because never in our, I don't know, I can speak for myself, never in my most dystopian dreams, nightmares, did I ever think I would see the end of American democracy and or a second civil war. And if there is a second civil war, it will only lend credence to something that I have been peddling for um, decades, and that is that we did not win the Civil War. And this idea that somehow the Civil War was a victory for the Union is overblown. My sense is it was one battle in clearly an ongoing civil war in this country. And this could be the second big battle coming up because we never did reconcile. There were efforts to, but never really. The so-called losers, the Confederacy, the South, created their own history. 
and it I mean, it, it it was heralded their history in American uh, popular culture. I give you Gone with the Wind. Their history made its way into our public schooling. So much so that I guess when you uh, poll young people in America today, some outrageously large percentage, I'm not going to throw a number out because I don't remember it, but it's hair-raising, do not know that slavery was at the heart of the Civil War. So it's interesting that uh, Ed would send me this little little snippet of what he heard yesterday at Trump's rally. This was nestled in there somewhere in between the flying bumblebee tuna and the joy with which he recounts the story of Ali Velshi, a reporter, uh, getting uh, taken down by a rubber bullet when he was covering uh, the protests in Minnesota. He tells this story at his rallies, and the crowd laughs and laughs, and he tells the story because he loves the fact that the media were attacked. So this is the kind of stuff, yes, of um, of despots looking to gin up their uh, their warriors. Um, telling them who their enemies are. Their enemies live next door to them. Their enemies might be their doctors. Their enemies might be the guy who delivers their mail. Their child's teacher. The nurse that takes care of them. But they are being taught to look at those who do not agree with them as their enemies, not opponents, enemies. So I woke up today to this article in The Atlantic, which picks up on that article I shared with you a month or so ago, an article so depressing about what could happen with this election that I recall little Tony, one of our one of my constant emailers, actually writing in despair, Lynn, stop it. <laughs> so little Tony, heads up, here it comes again. And what's scary about it is that this reporter is saying that this is very real and in fact quotes quotes someone right here in Pennsylvania a republican who is clearly uh saying that yes we're preparing for this kind of 
possibility. Um, I'm trying to find that, and of course I'm coming up empty. Why is that? So um, I think I've got the wrong... The headline of this article, if you want to look it up, is The Election That Could Break America. Um, and what specifically they're talking about is that Republicans in states where they control the legislatures, and that would be Wisconsin, that would be Pennsylvania, that if there is not a clear winner or there's a close relatively close vote, but let's say Biden wins Pennsylvania. They will say immediately that there have been, uh, you know, uh, ballots cast that uh, were uh, were faked, um, that there was um, definitely uh, something where the Democrats have tried to steal this election. And, uh, and so what they would do is instead of choosing the electors from the electoral college that go to Washington and cast the votes then for Biden from Pennsylvania, they, which is what should happen if Biden wins, they instead appoint their own and send electors, despite the vote, to Washington, to the Senate, where this is done, where they will then cast Pennsylvania's votes for Donald Trump. Uh, this article says that, you know, Trump behavior and 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 declared intent to leave no room to suppose that he, it, it just we know him now we see him uh anyone who thinks that he will accept the public's verdict the election result if the vote is going against him is again failing to acknowledge reality. Uh, so, what if? Um, okay, well, I can't find exactly what I'm looking for. So I am going to stop. And And you lucked out because I don't have to scare the bejeebers out of you, okay? Um, just as a, a, a wonderful little um, story that I also saw today, I mean, it's a scrap of, of uh, paper or parchment, I guess it would have been, um, that was found, and it dates back... Um, about a thousand years ago, and it's so wonderful because what it is is a scrap of the doodles 
of a child. Clearly, doodles of a child, and it looks like suffering through Hebrew school. Now, any any Jewish child who suffered through Hebrew school, uh, well, because well, you see the the attempts to write certain Hebrew words. This thing was found in Egypt, um, but the adorable sort of squiggles and 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 uh, doodles of a child a thousand years ago, exactly like the doodles of a child today. And this now unknown, long gone child of a thousand years ago even drew a pretty good uh, camel. (laughs) It's a drawing sort of of a camel with a happy looking face uh, atop it. Um, And it just, you know, just seeing that connecting me to another human being who experienced the same boredom (laughs) that I did as a child because I'm sure I filled up my little booklets with, uh, with doodles as well. One of the hard things about being a little Jewish kid in this Christian nation is that we always, um, two days a week, my entire uh, grade school and up into high school career, (laughs) career, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, After school, school would get out about 3.30, and I would then have to be taken over to the synagogue for Hebrew school, which began at 4 and lasted till 6. So all the little Jewish kids got two more hours of school twice a week, well, three times if you count Sunday school on top of it. So... And it was, you know, and what it did, it was especially hard on the boys because if a boy was, let's say, an athlete, it pretty much prevented that boy from joining their school sports teams because those teams would practice after school. And a child couldn't be at Hebrew school and at practice at the same time. So I do remember it as as a burden. And I remember it as something that marked us all and separated us. And when you live in a small town where there are so few of you, it's, it's not hard to feel that sort of separateness. But that thousand-year-old doodle, so much like one I could have done. 
Hey, if you want to totally just depress the hell out of yourself, Amy is telling me that she will put that Atlantic article and I'm having trouble finding the, I see it in front of me, but I'm just, I'm not finding what I want to in it. So, um, she'll post that on our Facebook page. Uh, yeah, I did see this. Mary writes, did you see the news? Why don't I ever like a sentence that starts with, did you see the news? You know it's not going to be good. Well, here's Mary's, and yes, I did, and probably you did too. Did you see the news about the Pentagon diverting almost a billion dollars in COVID funds? That was meant for masks and other PPE. Uh, instead, the Pentagon took those funds and um, made defense contractors uh, really happy because they bought up more body armor, more drones, even some dress uniforms. And Mary says, she thinks maybe in their heads this was COVID funding. That they were preparing for the state of this nation after the election. They're preparing to be able to more readily impose martial law. Oh gosh, you know you can't tell a you can't tell a, a paranoid from a from a realist anymore. That's a that that's scary. That is scary. Um, I got something here. I, I get, you know, a lot of uh, good morning. Uh, do you want, uh, I have some wonderful paint for you or, you know, I mean, I mean, just absurd things that I'm supposed to want to buy. Um, that kind of crap that fills your uh, mailbox. But this one struck me because of the QAnon aspect of it. Um, and I have no idea where this comes from. Hundreds of mothers are now raising money to get treatment for childs in Germany. It always has that thing where you know, oh, this is not an English speaker who is doing this. As a result, the gutted body was returned to the woman who was treating her son in Germany, and the organs were sent by parcel, by mail. The woman who was treating her son in Germany was returned the gutted body of her son, and the organs were sent later. The truth comes out. And then there's a picture of an adorable little boy, um, <laughs> who I guess, and then there's a picture under him of a totally mutilated body that is not him because the head's not there. Um, so it just says, remember, when sending your children to Germany for treatment, you can receive an eviscerated corpse and internal organs in a bag. Now what, it, 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 the only thing I know that comes close to that is the kind of QAnon crap. So uh, this, this is the kind of thing that some people get in their inbox and actually read <laughs> and actually think of as, oh, my God, do you believe that? 
you might recall Father um, Joseph's email. I think we ended the show with it uh, yesterday in which he talked. um, I don't know if that was the one, but he talked about how someone in his apartment complex had hung uh, that a Trump banner over with middle fingers raised um, and how it was right where the children, where the swimming pool is and, you know, where people congregate and how he had, um, he had fought back using the law uh, that in fact, everybody who lived in that, uh, in that apartment complex agreed to, certain rules. And one of the rules is that you couldn't do exactly what that guy had done, you know, put a, put an objectionable, I mean, I can't remember exactly the rule. And so lo and behold, it was taken down. But later, I guess yesterday, uh, Father Joseph sent me a picture. And the picture is like, I guess, right outside the apartment complex at the first corner, maybe, that anyone leaving the complex would pass. And it is this humongous display of not just that banner and flag, but let me see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And also, all of this Trump paraphernalia for sale, they got it, they got it all. Stand with the police, don't tread on me, Trump, 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 make America great, yada, yada, yada. So he just sent me the picture and just said, sigh. Yeah, so he got it off the balcony, but these guys are, (laughs) they're dogged. Um, you know, it's funny, like, you know, uh, Mary sends this thing and makes her think maybe they're going to declare martial law after the election. And this would normally, we're all being driven insane. And I, I did, as a case in point, I want to tell you my reaction to a headline I saw in the New York Times this morning. And I'd seen this story before, but there it was, this picture of a a guy in a suit. And it turns out he's a very rich uh, property tycoon in uh, in China. And he criticized their dear leader. He called the head of China, Xi, a clown. And I'm sure this man, who was probably a billionaire, felt comfortable doing that. But here's the headline. Chinese mogul who called Xi a clown gets 18 years in prison. And I I stopped because, you know, like to an American, that is so unreal. Because, listen to this. Donald Trump's a clown, Donald Trump's a clown, Donald Trump's a clown, Donald Trump's a clown. I say that because I don't fear that I will spend even one minute in jail for saying that 
because I have lived my entire life in a country that allows me the freedom to say what's on my mind and to voice my opinion. But, you know, when I saw this headline today, you know what I thought? That could be the United States, a headline about the United States, someone here in another four years, if Trump were to win. I mean, we already have an attorney general who is uh, pushing for protesters, for people voicing their opinion to be charged with sedition, right? So how far away are we right now from ending up spending 18 years in jail or some other punishment for merely saying something that an American would like say without any hesitation? I don't know. So I'm going to read this, not all of it maybe, but someone did a lot of work on this, a guy named Stuart Thompson. And he wrote, essentially it's an op-ed in the New York Times today, but its its headline is is an op-ed from the Republicans of 2016. What he did was take direct quotes from Republicans – what they were saying in 2016 when they refused to even meet with Merrick Garland a good 10 months before the presidential election. And now, of course, are salivating at pushing somebody through uh, literally hours uh, before Trump either leaves office or is carried out. And it is amazing. So after every sentence, there's a footnote. And the footnote tells you who said it. And I'll just tell you up front, the people who have written, he's compiled this, statements by people such as Mitch McConnell, Chuck Grassley, John Cornyn, Ted Cruz, Tom Tillis, Joni Ernst, Ron Johnson, on and on and on. Republicans. I'll just read a little of it because these are the words of these rock-ribbed Trumpers. Rarely does a Supreme Court vacancy occur in the final year of a presidential term. It makes the current presidential election all that more important as not only are the next four years in play – But an entire generation of Americans will be impacted by the balance of the court and its rulings. Just so as you know, those are the words of Mitch McConnell and Chuck Grassley. The American people are presented with an exceedingly rare opportunity to decide in a very real and concrete way the direction the court will take. And we believe the people should have this opportunity. That's James Inhofe.
And the best way to ensure that this happens is to have the Senate consider a nomination made by the next president. That's the person who ought to be making this appointment, the next president. That's Mitch McConnell, verbatim. This would not be unusual. It is common practice for the Senate to stop acting on lifetime appointments during the last year of a presidential term. That's Rob Portman. And on and on it goes. I'll cut down to the end here. Why would we cut off the national debate about this next justice? Why would we squelch the voice of the people? Why would we deny the voters a chance to weigh in on the makeup of the Supreme Court? Those are the heartfelt questions of Tom Cotton. No one disputes the president's authority to nominate a successor, but as inconvenient as it may be for this president, the Constitution grants the Senate the power to provide, or as the case may be, withhold its consent. That's Mitch McConnell. In addition to the normally high level of scrutiny accorded to a Supreme Court nominee, this nominee would have to pass an additional level of scrutiny, which is the question of whether he or she ought to receive a lifetime appointment this year when one could be made with a broad public stamp of approval less than a year later. Or we could say a few months later. That, by the way, was McConnell again. That is a standard no nominee is likely to be able to meet. The Supreme Court seat does not belong to any president or any political party. That's Mitch McConnell. All those quotes from the very people who are now about to do the exact opposite four years later. <clears throat> so, the cute little thing I came upon in uh, letters to the editor. The New York Times, one of uh, RBG's law clerks, um, recounting stories about her and how she and her husband would always have the clerks over for dinner um, at their at their home, and the cook, the great cook, was Marty Ginsburg. RBG's husband. Because she couldn't cook at all. And this woman was the clerk the year that Martin Ginsburg got ill, terminal cancer. And she said that he still managed to do the dinner and that they were just so so wonderful, and they, they would sort of finish each other's sentences. They sounded like high school sweethearts, she said, doting on each other, taking the narrative one from the other. But then she said this, when Marty was no longer well enough to cook, 
we clerks delivered pizza. We helped her figure out how to turn on the oven to heat it up. (laughs) Man. So those stories that she couldn't cook are not apocryphal. She couldn't even, did not know how to turn her oven on. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Oh, here's something. It's not horrible. Well, it might be. I don't know what it means. You know, we screw with nature all the time, and if nature starts hitting back, well, you know, karma's a bitch, as they say. But Spanish fishermen or just Spanish folks out in their little boats have been reporting unusual occurrences. And over the past few months, uh, there have been over a dozen uh, pleasure boats that have been damaged off the Iberian Peninsula, damaged because of orcas ramming them. Now, uh, this is not normal behavior for these animals. We talked about orcas the other day, about this pod, uh, you know, on our west coast, off the west coast, the the mother who had carried her dead baby on her back for, I think, 18 days, and how she is, uh, she has given birth again. And marine biologists and even, you know, sailors who've been plying the uh, seas for, a, you know, for generations say, I, this is not, <laughs> this ain't normal. So they're all struggling to figure out what's going on. Are these attacks by the orcas or are they just playful? Are they just friendly encounters where maybe you've got some adolescent male orcas thinking, hey, let's play. But because these animals weigh, I mean, tons, they're huge, they are bigger than these boats. I mean, rudders are being destroyed, hulls are being destroyed. Sometimes these boats end up having to be towed back, not to mention the people in them scared out of their minds. Now, one uh, one scientist says they do love to interact with moving objects, and they love wave riding if there's a vessel, especially one that's picking up any speed. So that creates a wake, and they love playing in those wakes. So they they really. Uh, 
they don't know. Uh, they're starting to blame it on, yeah, like a group of about six adolescent males, probably. <laughs> Even in that world, they are causing trouble. Uh, although for some of the people who've been on these boats, they had the distinct impression that the whales were trying to lift the boat out of the water or flip it. Anyway, apparently this is not going to be a problem facing uh, Spanish anymore because the orcas are doing their uh, thing moving up the coast and they should be off the the French coast uh, soon. And so a warning, I guess, to all French folks in boats. I have a call, I think. Hello. Hello, Lynn. Hello. You're talking about that guy getting the 18-year sentence for calling the guy a clown? Yeah. That guy's 69 years old. Yeah, so that's a life sentence. Yep, he'll die in jail because he'll never get out. No. But when you were talking about Hebrew school, Tuesdays and Thursdays? Yeah. When I was in grade school, we had to go to Catholic school on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Oh, did you? Yeah, it brought me right, as soon as I heard that, that memory came right back, (laughs) and we used to get out about five minutes early, and the teacher would say, okay, all the kids that have to go to Catholic school can leave now, so we get up, and you know, they're all going, there goes the Catholics. Ah, Really? Because, I mean, that didn't happen in Green Bay, because everyone was Catholic. (laughs) <laughs> if they had let the Catholics go, everyone would have gone and there would be only the Jews left. I don't know. Isn't that interesting, yeah. though? So you had um, you had class, too. Did it go on for two hours? Yes, it was, did. It did? I, I God, what were you it. learning? Was, what were you learning? Well, I mean, I, I was learning. We were learning an entirely different language that, you know, doesn't use – uh, anything like, you know, a language that reads uh, backwards to an American eye and a different alphabet and different. So that did take some doing. But what were you learning? You were being indoctrinated in the in the teachings of the church, right? I'll bind to the priest and the nuns. You know, <laughs> believe everything they tell you, even if it didn't make any sense. Don't question yeah. anything because we're right and you're wrong. Yeah. And you're just a little kid anyway, so what do you know? Yeah. That was pretty much it. Wow. Also, I gave up that Catholic faith. You know what? You're disappearing on me again. I don't know why that happens. This spirit sucks. Any better? No. Then I guess I'll leave you. I'm so sorry. Bye. I mean, the fact that I could answer your questions says I could hear you, but it's, I mean, you sort of disappear. So, um, oh, here's some, there's another little letter that, apropos of nothing, but I think this woman might be absolutely on it. It it could be one of the reasons. Um, uh, It's about why Trump is just so unwilling to wear a face mask. You know, I just thought because he feels like it makes you look stupid and it doesn't seem manly. (laughs) Um, But she says she's got the answer. 
She said, as any woman can tell you, the masks smear makeup. And yeah, this is a guy, you know, that orange face. (laughs) He wears makeup. I mean, heavy, awful makeup. And I can see why that would be one reason he would not want to have a mask because the minute he takes it off, there'd be, first of all, it would ruin the makeup because some of that makeup would come off uh, with the mask and then people would see it. And she reminds us that he didn't go to the ceremony at the uh, Veterans uh, Cemetery uh, in outside of Paris because the rain would ruin his hair and that this is all of a piece with this ridiculously vain uh, president. Just throwing it out there. Um, I have not noted, but I do want to take time since I saw her being beaten up yesterday. The woman uh, who had been uh, Pence's point person at the uh, coronavirus task force, uh, who has uh, left her position and uh, and said that she could no longer support uh, the administration and that she was voting for Biden. This is a lifelong Republican. She's the one who told us that she was just appalled at watching this supposed task force <laughs> that was supposed to combat the virus actively work to make things worse. And she recalls, um, uh, and you know this is Trump because it's just, I mean, I'm sorry, this has total ring of truth about it. She's talking about him. She was sitting right next to him at a, one of the meetings, and he said, when you're a politician, you have to shake a lot of hands. You have to shake a lot of hands. And these people are disgusting. It's gross. And so maybe COVID's probably a good thing, right? I don't have to shake hands. I don't have to do that anymore. Well, that just sounds pure Trump. Anyway, they trotted out a former three-star general uh, who just lied through his teeth about her. He actually said that he fired her and escorted her out of the building. And that is untrue. The old disgruntled disgruntled employee. He says the reason I fired her was her performance started to drop off. And then he actually made her seem like that she was like uh, of no importance anyway, just a backbencher, when she in fact was the vice president's chief aide on uh, coronavirus. And he, of course, was supposedly heading this commission. Anyway, she says, not only did not did he not escort me out of the building, he actually gave me a coin, a ceremonial coin, and took a photograph with her. She said, I wasn't fired, I resigned. And that is, that's what the first news reports were. She resigned. 
And when she resigned, she was actually asked to stay on. And yet this guy, and she, I saw a tweet that she put out. She said, so sad to see a three-star general telling a bald-faced lie to protect the president. Lifelong Republican. A brave woman. Because she knew what was going to happen the minute she did what she did. Um, And interestingly enough, this guy uh, who said he fired her did not refute any of the things that she had um, said. Which I don't quite get, because if they're willing to lie about anything and everything, why not lie all the way through it? Okay. I didn't have time to talk about this yesterday, but wow, anybody who has any faith left in the Centers for Disease Control, which was once considered a a pretty good institution, uh, you, again, um, you'd have to explain to me why why you would listen to a thing they say. Because they have been jerking us around. The CDC is there to say, here's what you do. And here's what you don't do. And they've been. I mean, there was one the other day. They just put some some guidance on the fact that the virus can be airborne and smaller. They put that out on their website. And then totally grabbed it, turned it around uh, a, a day later. And said, never mind. I mean, the total lack of any credible handle and leadership on on this pandemic from the federal government is, it's just, well, here we are. And then, uh, have you heard about this guy named William Cruz? He uh, he used to work at the National Institutes of Health. And he was a public affairs officer. Now, that's the same kind of position, right, that this guy Caputo, remember him? The guy who said, (laughs) who's now on medical leave, who was saying, telling people to arm themselves saying that he was probably going to be killed. Right. Yeah. That one. So this is another guy in that position. Um, And it turns out they just, they, they, they uncovered him. He had an alter ego, another, under a name, another name. He was putting out the most outrageous, absolutely the exact opposite of everything the NIH was telling people. He would undercut it and refute it, posting as this guy uh, named Strife. Here was uh, here was one of his posts. Now again, this is the guy that's supposed to be telling Americans how to battle uh, the pandemic. He says. Quote, 
We're at the point where it is safe to say that the entire Wuhan virus scare was nothing more or less than a massive fraud perpetrated upon the American people by so-called experts who were determined to fundamentally change the way the country lives and is organized and governed. Here's another post. If you need a mask to make it through the day without wetting yourself, well, by all means, wear it. Just don't expect me to go along with your fantasy. And he was trashing Dr. Fauci left, right, and center, calling him the mask Nazi, saying that he would refuse to cooperate with the public health Gestapo. And this is a guy who was the public affairs officer for the public health Gestapo. That was his day job. So you got this Caputo lunatic now out and some Canadian lunatic doctor that he brought on to be his special uh, assistant, who, by the way, the college that he said uh, this guy uh, taught at has disowned him, saying he is not a teacher here. That is not true. So here is a guy, Caputo, who had a fake doctor raising doubts about everything that the CDC and the NIH were putting out there, bullying the scientists at the CDC. Well, they're both gone now. And so is this guy, Cruz, a.k.a. Strife. And here's an understated little uh, sentence in, I guess this is the New York Times. The revelation on Monday that another public affairs officer in the Health and Human Services Department was surreptitiously engaging in attacks on the agency's work raises questions about how far the effort to undermine coronavirus science extends. Isn't that amazing? Jeez. Meanwhile, and maybe you didn't see this, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has a commission. Did you know that? It's a commission on, let me get the right name here, Commission on Unalienable Rights. And he and his commission have come up with new language that they want the United Nations to sign off on about human rights. And guess what these new, this new language on human rights does? It pretty much takes us back to like the 50s before those troublesome gays came out of the closet, before countries started allowing gay people to get married, even before women had even marginal uh, rights over their own bodies.
Well, suffice to say that the only countries that are likely to sign on to Pompeo's dream here would be countries like Saudi Arabia, which are fundamentalist, religious, misogynistic, anti-homophobic regimes. Europe, not so much. The response among European nations uh, is of concern because it appears that all Pompeo wants to do is emphasize freedom, actually religious liberty, that's what he calls it, religious liberty. That is a dog whistle that means I don't have to employ a gay person. I don't have to let a gay person live in my rental unit. I don't have to bake a cake for this gay couple. Religious freedom to Mike Pompeo and his ilk is the right of Christians to discriminate. That's all it is. His commission apparently put out a report, and within minutes, I think, 230 human rights organizations, religious groups, activists, former government, U.S. government officials wrote a letter to him saying, among other things, that this will undermine American commitments to human rights and provide cover for those who wish to narrow certain categories of rights protections. Let me just share with you who the commission is led by. A woman named Mary Ann Glendon. She is a former ambassador to the Vatican. And you may recall her wonderful soundbite to the uh, trying to remember where this where I heard it when remember when the Boston Globe got the Pulitzer Prize for its investigation of uh, child abuse by uh, Catholic priests um, that was made into a movie that I think also garnered a ton of awards right it was called Spotlight. When Marianne Glendon, who heads Pompeo's commission, heard that the Boston Globe had received the Pulitzer Prize, she said this. That is like giving the Nobel Peace Prize to Osama bin Laden. I'm just here to tell you that reading the paper or reading magazines. <laughs> oh God. Can be injurious to one's health. Seriously. Uh I have a caller? Okay, let's get him in. Why is somebody always calling at the last minute? Hello. 
Sorry, Lynn, I was washing dishes. That's no excuse. And listening to you, transfixed. and Yes. Uh, <laughs> I looked at the time. It's like, oh, i got to hurry up and get in there. Right? All right. Hey, that, hey, that three-star general is waiting for his payday, you know, that the uh, the, the big liar. He, you know, mm-hmm. these guys, they say all kinds of stuff so that they can, you know, when they retire, they got a nest egg that's being propped up by they did the favor for. And, right, right. So they can get even more lucrative kinds of work and be, you know, you know, I just want to know. How do these people sleep at night? And knowing they do, they sleep better than I do. Well, I've had a sleep disorder since I worked night shift down at the hospital. So. Well, that'll do it. That will do it. I don't know anything about sleeping. <laughs> oh, gosh. But, uh, hey, all of that stuff you said about uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg the other day, you know, a lot of that applies to you, too. I, I mean, you're an amazing person, and I... I, you know, you you make my day. I'll tell you that much. Oh, for heaven's sake! Well, thank and, you. Uh, it's it's thank you. Always a pleasure. But hey, you enjoy the day. I'm, I will try. <laughs> I will try. All thank right. you. Thank you so much. Sure. Bye bye. Bye. I got some dishes in the sink here too. If you if you want. Uh, well, I thought that. Um, well, I'm. I have to learn to accept compliments, but I thought that uh, comparing me to RBG. And there was some more. There's a, there's a lot being kicked up about her Jewishness. Um, I know Susan had a major rant yesterday. Um, but um, The Guardian, you know, the really usually very good newspaper um, out of Britain, wrote in their obituary that Ginsburg had abandoned her Judaism, uh, which is absolute bull. I mean, any Jew will tell you she has been she has been very much part of the Jew identifies totally as a Jew. And they were saying that what it represents is an not understanding American Jews. There are Jews, there are Jews, there are Jews. There are those Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox Jews you see that, you know, to my mind, wear funny clothes from uh, – they're still dressing like they're in the, the ghettos of uh, – of Eastern Europe in uh, 1650. I don't quite get that part. And um, whatever. And then there are Jews like uh, me and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, proud Jews. But a lot more, yes, assimilated. It doesn't mean we've abandoned our... I don't keep kosher. I haven't abandoned my religion. First of all, I want to make clear that Adolf Hitler made clear that a Jew cannot abandon their religion. That's a shout out to Stephen Miller. Because what is a Jew? Hitler defined it. Because it didn't matter if your mom wasn't a Jew, but your dad was. You were a Jew to Hitler. 
It didn't matter if your mom and your dad didn't raise you as a Jew. You had one grandparent who was a Jew. Hitler defined you. You're a Jew. Okay? So there's no getting away when the Jew haters start defining it. But to suggest that Ginsburg abandoned her Judaism is just mind-blowing. What she had done was take issue. And I understand it. When her mother died, she wanted to engage in the Jewish, these wonderful rituals of, of death for Jews. She wanted to say this Jewish prayer, the Kaddish. But at the time, she belonged to a kind of Judaism that refused to let women be counted as part of the ten people necessary to create a minion, the group that could say the prayers, that would say the prayers. Women didn't count. And I grew up in a synagogue like that. So you'd look around at services and you'd think, do we have a minion here? Do we have enough people to do the prayers? It's like a quorum. One, two, three, and not a woman was counted. She was enraged, and who can blame her? That is no longer the case. And a lot of Jews pulled away from that kind of craziness so that women are counted now in most synagogues. Women can read from the Torah, which they couldn't before. I mean, it's a, so whoever wrote that, again, is somebody who doesn't even comprehend what Judaism is or means to different Jews. We are not a monolithic group. We fight amongst ourselves astonishingly. But to suggest that the only Jews are those ones walking around like they're in a ghetto in some medieval city, no. That's not my kind of Judaism. I've moved on. I don't know where that came from, but all this is happening, and it is making me crazy that she's lying in repose, as they say. It's just the most un-Jewish thing imaginable. It's just maddening to me. All right, that's enough. I'm sorry. Goodbye. Uh, enjoy this beautiful day. I'm going to try to. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.